on a sunny summer morning. And uh, as a kid, I especially loved coming to church in, in the summertime. And uh, I know that this will be a memorable Sunday morning for these kids getting to come up front and put on the armor of God today. So it's, uh, it's something that puts a smile on everyone's face. And it's times like these that we remember the lessons uh, as they stick with us. So thank you, Amy, for leading us in that. Would you now bow with me as we enter God's word together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your gracious hand on our lives. We thank you for your many blessings, as has already been mentioned here this morning in the form of your blessing in the crops that are blooming even as we speak. You have sent the sun, you have sent the rain, and everything is growing according to your will, and for that we give you thanks. We thank you as well, God, that what is happening in the physical realm is is being mirrored in the spiritual realm, that even right now, uh, across this province and in our local context at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp, there is a harvest being brought in. There are seeds being sown, and we thank you for that, God, that we can stand with these Bible camps. We pray, God, that you would continue to bless them with everything that they need, um, even as we saw here this morning, the armor of God, so we can take our stand against the enemy's schemes. And we know that the enemy is working as well. He is trying to stop uh, your work. He is trying to stop young lives from turning to you. And so we come against him in Jesus' name and pray, Lord, that you would gain the victory, that in these young lives and hearts, Father, that your will would prevail and that they would come to a full knowledge of you in your salvation and be secure in that, Lord, and grow in the faith. And so we pray just a tremendous blessing upon Turtle Mountain Bible Camp, Lord, upon Howard and Kathy and the entire staff as they lead and as they serve would you provide for them today? Thank you as well, Lord, for your provisions for us here in this congregation. Thank you for uh, each one in this church family who does their part for your kingdom's sake, not for our own. We don't seek, Lord, to build our own empire. We seek to build your kingdom. And so thank you for each servant in this congregation who does their part for your glory. Bless them, Lord, in their work. Thank you, Father, that through this your spirit is at work and you build us up. And so, Father, we pray that that work would continue here this morning. Would you build us up according to your word? Challenge us, Lord, we pray. Uh, Give us receptive hearts to hear what you have for us. And, Father, we pray that if there's anything here today that would hold us back from hearing your word, we pray that you would just cast that aside, take away the distractions, and help us to hear you clearly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. During his years as leader of the Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of the former leader, Joseph Stalin. Once, as he censured Stalin in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience. You are one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Who said that? Stand up and show yourself, roared Khrushchev. An agonizing silence followed as no one in the room dared move a muscle. Then Khrushchev replied quietly, Now you know why. This is the way of the world. When confronted by someone bigger, stronger, and more intimidating, the instinct for self-preservation compels most people to keep their head down and remain seated. It is the truly rare individual, the truly exceptional one, who is willing to stand up and be identified. Someone who, no matter how intimidating the opponent or dangerous the situation, is willing to courageously stand for their beliefs, 
hold firm to their convictions, even and especially when that means standing alone. But when that person stands up, nothing is ever the same again. For when one person stands up in their faith and in their convictions, it is amazing to see what God can do. And this is what we will clearly see today in the continuing story of David as we enter part three of our series in David. This, of course, the most famous of all of David's encounters, David and Goliath. Now, just a recap for those of you who weren't here for the first two, and for those of us who were, just to familiarize ourselves again with David's story up until this point. He started out, of course, as the runt of the litter, the youngest and smallest of eight brothers, given the job that no one else wanted, out in the, the wilderness with the sheep. He is overlooked at every single turn. His oldest brother clearly doesn't think very highly of him. His dad overlooks him, and even the prophet Samuel completely disregards David as being a potential king of Israel. But of course, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David became God's choice for the throne because he possessed a heart above all else. He possessed a heart that was after God. He possessed a heart that pursued God above all else in life. He, he chased God with his life. And this produced in David a character that was one that God was looking for in a future king. A character of faith, integrity, humility, personal security, and an understanding of authority and being in submission. God saw David's heart and said, this is what I'm looking for. This is a man after my own heart. This is someone that I can use. And so, of course, the question for us is, what does God see in us? What does he see in your heart? What does he see in mine? Rest assured that no matter how inadequate you may feel, so long as your heart is after God's heart, so long as your life is yielded to him, pursuing him above all else, he will take you. He will mold you into something useful and valuable to him. For example, say a bar of raw steel is worth roughly $5 in an unrefined form. If you take that same steel and heat it and hammer it on an anvil and make it into a horseshoe, it might perhaps double in value in the sporting goods department to say $10. $10. Take that same bar of steel and put it through a lengthier process of cutting, refining, and molding, and it could be made into thousands of sewing needles, and the value then becomes $350. But if that same bar of steel is used for the most detailed and painstaking process of refining, paring, shaving, heating, and microscopic manipulation, a master watchmaker can fashion the delicate springs and gears for Rolex watches and it could potentially yield upwards of $250,000, all with the same bar of steel. The only difference between the beginning and the end value of each of those bars of steel is the process. The longer and more difficult the process, the greater the payoff in the end. God had big plans for David's life, and he was not going to take any shortcuts with the process of preparing him for the throne. And so far, David has been doing quite well. He's learned the lessons of the wilderness. 
He's been a faithful and brave shepherd, one who's defended his sheep from wild animals. He says he's taken on bears and lions single-handedly with nothing more than a sling and a staff, and he's defeated them. So we see here his courage. We also see that he does everything with enthusiasm. He's all out. There's no half-heartedness with David in his actions. He is enthusiastic. He loves God, and he worships him daily. And we see that in the book of Psalms, where beautiful songs are written, that he, of course, I'm sure, had the seeds planted in the wilderness with the sheep. And we see those images coming through so often. He's been promoted, finally, now to play harp for King Saul. And he does it so well that Saul promotes him to be his own armor-bearer. But now, David is about to face his biggest test. And I mean big. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. It comes in the form of a 9-foot, 9-inch Philistine killing machine. This man is a behemoth. He is clad in 125 pounds of bronze armor. He is wielding a 33-pound spear that was over 20 feet long swinging a massive sword with a shield so big that another man had to carry it in front of him. Now, this is an intimidating specter, to say the least. Now, we don't know very much about Goliath, but we can piece together some things from Scripture and from history. Goliath is most likely one of the last descendants of Anak. At least the Hebrews of that day believed it to be so. The Anakites were a formidable race of giant warlike people who occupied the southern lands of Canaan near Hebron before the arrival of the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 13 and verse 28, as well as Deuteronomy 9 verse 2, they are identified uh, as Anakites who are living in the city of Jericho. And you'll recall that when the twelve spies were sent into the land to spy out the land, when they came back, they said that Jericho was inhabited by giants and that they themselves appeared as grasshoppers in comparison. And so when Jericho was finally defeated and Joshua led the Israelites in the conquest of the rest of Canaan, the few surviving Anakites fled the region and some of them settled near Gath, which is clearly where Goliath is from. And so without expounding too much further on this, the reality is that giants were very real. This is not hyperbole, this is not exaggeration that the scripture is using here. Giants are real, and in fact, modern science has taken quite an interest in the existence of giants. There was even a show on the History Channel this past winter called In Search of the Lost Giants. And there has been uh, evidence pointing towards the existence of people 10 feet and even in excess of that in height. So here we see this is not just exaggeration on the height of this man. He is truly gigantic. And so here we turn to our text, if you will. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. You can follow along. We had it read earlier, so it's all fresh in our minds. Beginning at the beginning of uh, chapter 17, verse 1, we find that Saul and his army are facing this living, breathing, blaspheming giant who is daily calling down curses on their heads He's denouncing their God, he's cursing them by his gods, and he's demanding that someone step up to the plate to fight him in single combat. Now, in ancient times, it was not that unusual for battles to be decided in this manner. Kings often preferred the use of single combat because it could avoid potential and costly bloodshed that 
In a battle in ancient times, the casualties were often in excess of 50% of your entire troops. And so if you could send one of your best fighters in, and especially if he could win, you could avoid losing half of your army even to achieve a victory. And so single combat was often a preferred method, especially if your side happened to have the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world in the form of a 9-foot, 9-inch, blaspheming, killing machine man of war. Now just imagine, the Philistines have been defeated by Saul a couple of times in recent years, and they're thinking, how can we get back at this guy? And then they recruit Goliath. You know, in modern, in modern terms, it's like they just got a nuclear bomb. They have the edge. They have the weapon that cannot be defeated. They've unleashed Goliath. Talk about a wonder weapon. They think they're going to bring Goliath to the front lines, and it's game over. And they would have been right. Except for one wrinkle in the story that they didn't account for. And so here we see this undisputed heavyweight champion of the world comes out every single day. Verse 10, we read the challenge. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give us a man and let us fight each other. And verse 11 gives us their reply. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of Israel were dismayed and terrified. They were shaken in their booties. They were scared. Let me tell you, they were ready to turn tail and run. They managed to hold ranks, but those men were looking for the exit, and Saul among them. He was not at all interested in taking on the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And so here we see that King Saul himself, King Saul, the leader of the nation, should have been standing up, but instead he remained seated. And now we should remember that though Saul was many things, he was not a coward. He was calculated, but he was not a coward. He was willing to go into battle. He had been in battle many times with the Philistines and Ammonites, and God had given him victories up until this point. So what had changed? Well, you'll remember from last week, the most important thing of all, God's spirit had departed from him. You see, God was no longer with Saul. In fact, God had, spent, had allowed and sent an evil spirit to afflict him. And so now for the very first time in Saul's reign as king of Israel, for the very first time he had to face an enemy without God and on his own. And the result? Saul is paralyzed by fear. And so the entire nation was paralyzed with him. And who can blame them? For if King Saul, the strongest, tallest, and mightiest warrior among them, the only one who most likely had a full set of good armor and weapons, if he would not face Goliath, what lesser man would stand even the slightest chance of having victory over this killing machine? Verse 16 informs us that Goliath continued to issue his challenge, all the while mocking and blaspheming God for 40 days straight. Now let's pause here for a moment. 40 days straight. You're being mocked and ridiculed. You feel entirely powerless. You're paralyzed by fear for 40 days straight. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been paralyzed and a situation is staring you straight in the face and you are feeling mocked and ridiculed and powerless and you're wondering, where is God? Now maybe we don't have 9 foot 9 inch killing machines to face anymore, but each of us has our own personal giants, don't we? 
Each of us has our own obstacles that seem insurmountable. They are the giants of the soul. Your giant may be an overwhelming set of circumstances, perhaps a serious medical condition, chronic depression, maybe a situation in your employment, perhaps a family member or a co-worker who is hostile towards God and ridicules your faith on a regular basis. For others, perhaps your Goliath is a habitual sin, one that meets you in the valley of your weakness to continually intimidate you and rob you of personal joy, of hope, and of freedom. It's left you paralyzed in fear, thinking you could do nothing for God so long as this giant is mocking you to your face. It taunts your inability to overcome it. Perhaps it's a substance abuse. Maybe it's pornography. Having sex outside of marriage. Spending to excess. Greed, lust, gossip, dishonesty. Whatever it is, you feel powerless in the face of it. And so whether you are struggling silently or have allowed others to join you in your journey and help you through prayer and support and accountability, the one thing that we all have in common with our giants is that the battle is very real. The battle is real, and it is constant. It is unrelenting. So how can one ever hope to have victory over a Goliath? Well, the answer is this. We have to look past the giant and by faith look to the one who is greater. If all we see is the giant, we will forever be paralyzed by fear and our own inability. So we have to look past the giant and see the one who is greater. And this is where we learn our first lesson for today. Faith begins with vision. It is in the middle of these events that David, the faithful shepherd, no older than 17 at this point, he's sent by his father to bring food to the front line. At this point, God has already anointed David to be king, and now we see it's no accident, this encounter with Goliath. God has set this up as the next great test. And so here for 40 days, Goliath has issued his challenge, only to be met by the whimpers of Israel and the paralyzed fear of King Saul. And so now here we are on the 41st day, and someone has decided to stand up. For 40 days, King Saul and his army stood paralyzed, and on the first day that he heard the challenge, the very first time, David steps up to the plate. It didn't take him 40 days of badgering to find his courage. He found it the first time he heard God's name being blasphemed. He said, who is this heathen to defy the living God of heaven. You see, God knew, or pardon me, David knew the power of God, and he was willing to defend God's name at all cost. Giant or no giant, he stepped up to the plate the first time. And while everyone is sitting, David stands. Now there's a couple of interesting things to note here. The first is this. God allows giants to cross our paths for a reason. Now, you might be thinking about your personal giant and and thinking to yourself, well, why has God allowed this, this challenge, this temptation to even come my way in the first place? In verse 26, we see David inquired about a reward given to the one who had faced Goliath. And so we look at the prize. There's great riches, a royal bribe, exemption from paying taxes, and of course, fame. It was a kingly reward to the man who would defeat Goliath. All that stood between David and getting his foot in the the door of the royal family and one step closer to the promised throne, all that stands between is Goliath. 
The goal is plain, but the obstacle is gigantic. And of course, each one of us, when we look at our gigantic obstacles, we would love to skip the giants. We would love to go straight into the royal family. But that's not how God worked with David, and that's not how God works with us. You see, God puts giants in our path for a reason, and the reason is simple. There is no possible way to have victory over our giants without God. And so giants force us to call out to God and rely completely and utterly on Him for the victory. We are powerless without God, and we have to acknowledge that when facing a giant. And so whatever you are facing that seems impossible, sickness, habitual sin, a hopeless situation, or just condemnation and guilt of the past, look past the problem and look to the one who is greater. Exercise your faith to look upward towards God. Secondly, don't get distracted by the criticism of others when you are facing Goliath. Verse 28 reveals the attitude of Eliab, David's oldest brother, He had been passed over for the kingly throne, and it's evident that he was bitter about it. He figured he should have been next in line, and Samuel bypassed him. And so we see here his response to David is an outright attack on his character in an attempt to humiliate him. The average person might have taken issue with Eliab's words, got into a big argument, lost his cool, but David was focused on the real conflict. The lesson we can learn from this is to be careful to avoid wasting precious energy fighting the wrong enemy. We may have difficult people in our lives, in our families, but don't treat them like the enemy. The real enemy is out to divide your family and break up your home. We don't have an enemy here within the ranks of Bay Avenue Mennonite Church. Look around. There might be people you don't always see eye to eye with, but there is not an enemy here. The real enemy is the enemy of our souls who would love nothing more than to destroy this church, to destroy its witness, and tear us apart, to scatter the flock. That is our true enemy. Let's not waste our energy and time by fighting amongst the ranks. David didn't waste his time arguing with Eliab. He was focused on what God was calling him to do. You see... Too often, saints get distracted by Satan's ploys to divide and conquer. And so don't get hung up on the naysayers and the critics. Stay focused on what God has put before you to accomplish. Thirdly, remember what God has already done. When we're facing our giants, we have to remember who we serve. Verse 32, David answers the challenge by citing experiences with God against the lion and the bear. Verse 36 sums it up. As far as David is concerned, he says, I've seen the faithfulness of God. The same God who delivered me from the the mouth of the lion and the mouth of the bear is going to deliver me from this Philistine. And too often, we remember what we should be forgetting and forget what we should be remembering. You see, we tend to remember the failures and forget the victories. But it's the other way around. God wants us to remember the victories of what he's done. So often he says, build a monument, remember what I've done, so that in future days you will remember my power and my faithfulness to have courage to rise up once again. So let me ask you, what are you remembering that you should be forgetting? And what are you forgetting that you should be remembering? You can probably think of examples. I can think of an example in this church family, this congregation. I remember nine years ago, Beginning as a pastor here, believe it or not, 23 years of age, 
People always say, my, you're young for a pastor. I said, you should have seen me when I started. I couldn't even grow this much. Nine years ago, I still remember it. I remember a deeply wounded congregation, one who had just come through a terrible division. The vultures were circling, and the critics were speculating on how long it would take for this church to close its doors. But God, but God had other plans. His plans were for healing and for hope and for a future. His plans were for this church to rise up and once again become a beacon of light to this community, one that would be ready and willing to count the cost, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we remember God's faithfulness to this congregation? Do you remember God's faithfulness to you personally? Don't forget, don't lose sight of what God has done in the past. Faith begins with vision. So remember what God has done in the past. Allow that to inspire you for what he has yet to do in the present. God is greater than any obstacle. Remember that. Secondly, when we have that vision, it inspires our courage. Now comes the moment of truth. David steps into the field of battle. Up until this moment, he has still had the option to back out, and no one would have blamed him. Of course, Eliab would have said, see? But he could have backed out, and everyone would have got it. But now he's finally entered the field of battle. Goliath is in front of him. And verse 42 tells us that when Goliath first sees David, he believes it's a joke. He doesn't even believe that this is a true challenge. Am I a dog? He says, that you come to me with sticks? Come here and I will give you, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. We hear this challenge and if David had just turned tail and run as fast as he could, well, we would have understood, everyone would have understood, but he would have never lived it down. After talking a very big game, he would never have been taken seriously again. He could most certainly have never become the king of Israel had he backed down now. And so the question is, would David have the courage to stand and fight when faced by a 9-foot, 9-inch Philistine killing machine? Would you? (laughs) Yeah, that's where it gets real personal, doesn't it? Would you be willing to stand in front of him? Would I? You know, my tactic as as a teenager in facing opponents larger than myself was the hit and run tactic. You know, get my shot in and then run for the hills. You know, no one would have blamed David for running for the hills, but David has an answer to Goliath. Verse 45, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, David knew who he represented on the field of battle. He was there on divine order. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David knew he wasn't alone. David's eyes were not on the giant. His eyes were on the one who is greater. Intimidation is a non-factor when we possess that invincible confidence in the power of God, the one who is greater. Verse 47, David continues, The Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Who is fighting your battles today? Who is fighting them for you? Are you fighting them on your own? Is it by your power and your might? Is it by your strength and your ability and your skill? Or are you handing the battle over to the Lord? You see, David recognized that the battle is the Lord's. It belongs to him. And that victory or defeat depends solely 
on our trust in him. David trusted completely and utterly in God and was filled with courage beyond measure as a result, a courage that astounds us even to this day as we read those words of his reply. We are inspired by his courage, and we see where it came from. It did not come from his own ability. It came from his unshakable confidence in the power of God. And so finally, this courage results in action. The battle is the Lord's, but David still had to sling the stone. Remember that. The battle belongs to the Lord, but he still asks us to sling the stone. In the final analysis, it only took one stone from David's sling to bring Goliath to the ground. The stone landed on the only place it could have dropped Goliath. And now whether we say that God divinely guided the stone, or whether God divinely blessed David to become the best sling shooter around is up for debate. But either way, we see God's hand. And I tend to believe that God's hand was on both parts. And so it begs the question, just how good was David with the sling? Well, some ancient warriors were known to be deadly accurate with their slings. A skilled slingshot artist could fire those stones at more than 100 miles per hour. In Judges chapter 20, verse 16, there's this obscure little verse that says that the Benjamite army had 700 chosen men who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Might be a bit of exaggeration or hyperbole going on there, but nonetheless, it speaks to their skill, a hair and not miss. And so here we see that David has that kind of a skill. All of David's past was preparing him for this critical moment in his life. David's character and confidence was strong because God had built his faith. But not only did God do his part, David did his. David had trained for years with the sling, and God blessed the results. In other words, it is God who gives the ability and power to defeat your Goliath. But you still have to step out in faith and take action. We can't just sit back and say, God, you kill Goliath. He says, no, believe me, I will work through you. Step up and see what I will do. And so take action. He won't simply send a lightning bolt down from heaven to eviscerate the foe. Have courage. Step out in faith. Take action and see what victory God is just waiting to give to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the amazing and continually inspiring story of David. God, this is a story that has stood the test of time through the ages as one of the ultimate example of faith and courage in action. We thank you, God, that through this test, David not only passed, he sailed. And through it, God, you brought about a great victory for the people. And today you are still bringing about victory as we hear the lesson of it. And so, Father, we pray that today for this congregation, whatever the giants we see before us, whatever obstacles that seem too big for us to overcome, oh God, help us to recognize the battle belongs to you. You are the one who is mighty in battle. You are the one who can overcome even the strongest strangleholds of the enemy. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you and we ask, oh God, give us the victory and give us the faith to step out and act on what you are asking us to do. So, Father, for each one who's here today, whatever they are facing personally in their lives, help them to have faith. Help them to have the vision to look past their obstacle, past their Goliath, to see you, the one who is greater, 
and know that your power, your strength, and your grace is sufficient. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.